You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. Before we get to this week's episode, I'd like to note that the call for proposals is open for O'Reilly's newly launched design conference. The conference will be January 20th to 22nd, 2016 in San Francisco. For more information and to submit a proposal, visit O'Reilly.com slash designcon. Now to this week's episode. O'Reilly's Mary Tressler chats with Pilgrim Baird about co-founding his company, AlertMe, and about why the scale of the Internet of Things creates as many challenges as it does opportunities. He also talks about the quote-unquote gnarly problems emerging from consumer wants and behaviors. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Mary Tressler. I'm here today with Pilgrim Burt. Pilgrim is a computer engineer and founder of several startups in the IoT space. Most recently, he sold his company AlertMe, a connected home platform to British Gas. Pilgrim, thank you for joining me. A great pleasure. It's lovely to be here. So I'd like to just start off by uh, letting those that don't know of you, um, if you could share a bit about you and your background. Okay. Well, I uh, started off life as a a computer engineer doing uh, computer hardware design, you know, chip design and uh, sort of low-level software. And then I worked at a number of startups uh, in the UK, in Oxford and Cambridge, and then spent most of the 90s in Silicon Valley working in startups there. And um, in the late 90s, I came back to the UK and decided it was time to start uh, starting companies myself. How hard can it be, I thought. (laughs) And I then discovered quite quickly how hard it is. Um, That was about, uh, what, 15 years ago now. And... um I've now started five companies, uh, wow. all with a sort of connected, you know, connected theme. Um, and uh, AlertMe was was company number four, uh, and I started that in 2006. So that was a nine and a half, nearly ten year journey from inception to uh, you know to the exit we've just had. And uh, they they say it often does take ten years from from idea to to exit, and I think it certainly was in that case. Wow. Okay. How, can you tell me a little bit about, um, you mentioned that uh, many of your startups have been in the connected space. How did you come up with the idea for Alert Me? Well, really, I, I co-founded it with uh, Adrian Critchlow, I should say, who was from more of a web services background. So he uh, co-founded something that became bookings.com mm-hmm. in, the, in the hotel booking space. And uh, so my background was more sort of embedded technology. His, his was more web services. And just over a series of lunches uh, in, in Cambridge, where we both lived at the time, um, we, we just got discussing two things, really. One was the way that technology was going, you know, so technology push, what sort of changes were happening that made, that made certain things inevitable. And also consumer pull, you know, what were the gaps hmm. that technology wasn't really addressing? And uh, so to some extent, we were discussing at quite a high level the, the sort of intersection of those two, perhaps not quite in that rational way. But, but, you know, as we talked about things we were interested in, that's essentially what we were doing. So we were sort of triangulating between the technology push and the consumer pull and trying to spot things that essentially would be inevitable because of those two things. Uh, and then, you know, that led us to thinking, OK, about the connected home platform and the, you know, what could the killer apps for the connected home be? And isn't it strange how the home, you know, if you compare the home to the car, for example, mm-hmm. cars have a large number of computers in them uh, and the computers all work together seamlessly and invisibly to keep you safe, keep you secure, save you energy and so on. Whereas in the home, you have a similar a number of computers they're not talking to each other and as a result it you know it's really far from ideal you have no idea what's going on in your home uh, most of the time and uh, you know it's not energy efficient it's not secure etc so we you know we saw a huge opportunity there and we saw the, the potential for some technological advances to help address um, those problems 
Interesting. So it, it sounds to me like, um, you know, if I'm putting words in your mouth, please, please stop me. But we have a lot to learn or we still have a, we've learned a lot, but we still have a lot to learn about um, connected homes to some degree. Um, and it seems to me like the car came before all of that. Right. I mean, do you think there are lessons to be pulled from automobile industry? Yeah, interestingly, I was speaking at a uh, an automobile conference last week, actually, and I oh. think there are interesting lessons to be learned in, in both directions. So, yeah, I think cars are ahead in that they are, you know, ecosystems that are very well designed and finished off. And they, they kind of have to be for reasons of safety and so on. And they can be because they're delivered by one brand owner. So, you know, um, VW or BMW or whoever deliver your car and they just they just make sure it all it all works. Um, and obviously the home is different because you don't live in an Apple home or a Google home. Some people might might get close to that. But, but you know, your, your home is a much more of a wild west and, and therefore it's much harder to deliver that complete experience. And, and actually, one of the things I've learned about the home from Alert Me Days is just the diversity of people's homes and lives. There is no such thing as the average consumer. There's an enormous diversity of ways that people live in their homes. And so, you know, that, that much more than, than cars. So I think that, that makes that, that hard. Um, I think, you know, on the other hand, though, the way in which the home is perhaps sort of ahead is that because it's this Wild West, because consumers can bring their own devices into the home and do whatever they want, then in areas like um, uh, IPTV and, and uh, mm -hmm. audio streaming and, uh, of course, smartphones and so on. People are, you know, are bringing much more modern technologies into the home more quickly than in the, the car. You know, the car has a seven-year uh, development cycle. And, and so you get into a new car and you look at the sat-nav and you think, well, that looks a bit, <laughs> bit old-fashioned, you know, and you, right. you, can't, you can't pinch to zoom or, or and you don't, <laughs> can't talk to it and so on. It's, it's sort of, you know, so I think I think it's an interesting comparison, but I think uh, the analogy probably breaks down at a certain point. Sure, sure. It's interesting comment too. There's no such thing as the average consumer. It's so true when it comes to homes. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about what you see as the promising aspects of the Internet of Things, given your experiences. Well, you know, a problem we all have is that the, the phrase, the Internet of Things, has come to mean everything and therefore nothing. Right. Uh, so, so that's an incredibly general question. It's like asking almost what's the potential of the Internet? Mm -hmm. And I think, actually, that's probably the first thing to say is that in 10 years' time, I'm pretty confident we'll look back and be surprised that we, we treated the Internet of Things as a special category because I think in 10 years' time, we'll probably just call it the Internet. Right. Uh, and most of, most of our experiences and most of our devices will be what we now call Internet of Things, but but in, you know, in ten years' time, we'll just call it the Internet. A little bit like the way you know we we treated WAP as a special kind yeah. of thing when it became possible to browse the Internet on the mobile phone. But now we don't think anything of it. You know, of course we browse the Internet on our phones. Why? You know, what would what else would you do? So um, hmm. so I think I think a similar transition is coming. I think the the huge potential of the Internet of Things, in a nutshell, though, is is its its scale. You know, if you just look at the number of devices connected devices in our lives and the way that that's set to grow, that creates enormous potential to have lots and lots of new things in our lives, um, which can help to do things that we might want or need to do. And, and I think, you know, that's the big upside. And I, I think it's very exciting. And I think we can only guess at some of the possibilities. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, those upsides have a potential dark side as well to them as well, right. uh, which we need to sort of bear in mind. Um, but, uh, you yeah, know, that's always the way with technology. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you look across the board, and I know it's a very general question, but you look across the board at different industries, and you think it has the ability 
to solve so many problems, so many systemic problems, whether it's with government or healthcare. But there's so many directions in which it, it could go wrong, right? <laughs> and so I'd like to talk a little bit about what you see as the challenges around, um, you know, its potential. What, you know, and, and I, I men mentioned a few of these to you and, and my message to you around standards and scale and privacy. What do you think are the biggest, the next set of big challenges for the folks that are involved in this space trying to make sure that we, we see it, um, see it tr truly realized? Yeah, so I think I think scale is the driver for all its potential, and it's also the source of a lot of the potential problems with it, which mm -hmm. we need to we need to look at. Um, so on balance, I, you know, I put scale on both sides of the equation. I think standards are absolutely necessary. There's still a lot of work being done there. In fact, there's a lot of progress being made. I think we're we're actually pretty close to, you know, a set of standards which will let us actually you know, bring about the Internet of Things properly, um, that almost none of them are actually being used right now, though. So, so there's still, you know, still several years of shaking out to do. But I, I don't think there's any rocket science problem in standards in the Internet of Things. I think we've already, you know, most of the stuff we need has already been invented. It just has not, not been, you know, deployed and rolled out yet. So that's something that has to be done. But I don't think there's any really gnarly problems to wrestle with there, um, just lots of good work. I think where the gnarly problems come is the softer um, stuff that's to more to do with human uh, humans and consumer sort of wants and behaviors and so on. And I think there, you know, you highlighted privacy, um, or was it privacy? I can never remember how it's pronounced <laughs> on both sides. Having, having lived in the in the States, I now, there's loads of words now that I just don't, can't pronounce at all. Both, both <laughs> anyway. work, both work perfectly let's, fine. Let's go, okay. So um, uh, I'll pronounce it differently every time I say it. So, so <laughs> privacy, I think, um, is, is a very interesting one. I think people sometimes Sometimes conflate that with security. Mm -hmm. I think security is a very important topic. Uh, it's primarily a technical topic, and to a large extent, it's a very well understood one. So I think if you if you pay attention to security, it is possible to get it right. Uh, whereas privacy is something that's uh, much more fluid, and it's much more about social norms, expectations, implicit contracts between uh, mm -hmm. consumers and, and providers. Uh, and, and there's a lot there that we, you know, obviously, even beyond the IoT, but, you know, how Facebook treats your data, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the society obviously is going through a massive process of experimentation to understand what what is reasonable um, and what people want to achieve there. And uh, I think the Internet of Things just uh, accentuates that because it collects so much more data and often does so quite subconsciously or invisibly. So if you're interacting with uh, an internet-connected TV mm -hmm. uh, or Facebook or something, I mean, those are areas that people have raised privacy concerns recently. Uh, at least you you know you're doing it. You know, it's not right. something you do un unknowingly. Whereas the Internet of Things can capture data about you without you even knowing that's happening. And um, uh, I mean, in some ways, that's the that's the great thing about the Internet of Things is it can disappear into the background. But but also that could lead to uh, privacy invasion on a monumental scale, and unless you know we we understand what the norms are and so on. And there are there are things going on on both sides of the Atlantic about that. Uh, within Europe, there's quite a lot of legislation coming down the pipe about that. Um, on, in America, it seems there's less legislation, but still a lot of discussion around, uh, you know, what's the what's the right approach to that? Right, what's appropriate. It is a spongy, spongy problem, mm, for sure. That's a, good, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I'll, I'll use that again in the future. <laughs> 
Um, I'd love to talk a little bit. I was just reading up about Amazon Dash before this call, but I'd love to talk a little bit about what products and people you're that are catching your eye in this space. And it may be people, you know, maybe something we've heard of, or it may be something that's just started out. I think a lot of the fascinating projects that are being worked on right now are probably um, not things that are in the mainstream. They're under all of our radars because there seems to be such uh, such a tremendous growth in the space and a lot of experimentation, interesting projects going on. But what is it that's catching your eye? Yes, well, Dash is an interesting one. And that's that's an example of something which we played around with actually a long time ago uh, at, at, in the early days of AlertMe. People played around with buttons that could order you a pizza and so on. You know, one, oh. of, the, one of our offerings when we had a B2C proposition in the UK, uh, one of the offerings we had was a something where you could add certain things to your system, one of which was a button, and you can make the button do anything. It could send someone an email or yeah, do, do all sorts of interesting things. Hmm. So, um, you know, I think... There's nothing new under the sun. All these, everything's been, you know, done one way or the other. But I think what tends to tip the balance sometimes is uh, whether other parts of the market are ready, and also just the the cost of doing things. Um, mm-hmm. So if you can already leverage a um, uh, an existing gateway, so you only have to provide the edge device, then that's obviously hugely uh, enabling um, in terms of cost. It means you can ship something for you know a total cost of a few dollars um, rather than having to ship something for potentially tens of dollars if you've got to include the gateway as well. Hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, an interesting, I, I suppose most of my interest and knowledge is actually a sort of at a level below that, which is more about the enabling technologies. So when I look at, at, at solutions like uh, the dash buttons, I kind of am interested in what's happening, particularly in the consumer domain with technologies like Wi-Fi, Zigbee, Bluetooth, mm-hmm. low energy, and so on, and the things that they could enable, some of which you know, require a gateway, some of which can use your smartphone as a mothership. And that's a very, very interesting hmm. kind of area. But of course, then the question is, what happens when your phone isn't there? Right. Um, and, and, and we're sort of getting, you know, by default, a lot of these connected services are coming with their own gateway to make sure that you can deploy them in your home. And then suddenly you've got five gateways in your home. And that's not a good, mm. um, that's not a good place to, place to be. So I think what I'm quite interested in is, is the extent to which um, certain standards at different levels of the stack are sort of becoming standard and becoming common, uh, and and then that will enable um, that will make it possible for people to to deploy things like Dash at a at a very low price point, and then suddenly you know just get millions of them uh, of them out there. Mm. Interesting. Well, you you must have had to work through all of those same things when when you were building AlertMe. I mean, to think, you know, a connected home, there's so many moving parts, right? Um, Mm. And so um, let me ask you this. You've started several several startups, right? Um, Several companies. And there's a lot of folks that are, you know, there's a lot of uh, developers and designers that have that uh, entrepreneurial bug um, and want to start their own companies. I'm curious, what kind of advice would you give them or which or knowledge you wish you had, um, you know, back in, in the early days of when you were starting up these companies? Well, where do I start? Uh, yeah, it's one long process of making mistakes and then learning from them and then making different mistakes. So, so yeah, I mean, but that's the fun thing, really. Learning, learning's the fun bit. It is. So, 
I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think it's true that once you've done it, you know, if you do something once, then it's very hard to tell what the lessons are that were specific to that particular thing, you know, your market or your technology or whatever, mm-hmm. and which are more generic. Uh, and, and I suppose having been around that loop a few times now, I'm starting to tease out things that I think might be generic. I'm starting to notice mm. situations I've been in before in a different company and go, ah, oh, that's interesting. And <laughs> it's one of those things. So for me, one of the, I, I'm, I can't quite remember when it was, but a few years ago, I, I, I was sort of bemoaning the fact that I always seem to be too early. <laughs> you know, I'm, always, I'm always kind of waiting for the market to happen and you, it, you, know, you have to survive whilst the market happens. And then I suddenly thought, well, no, you know, don't be stupid. Of course you're too early. You're an innovator. You know, you're always trying to think five years ahead. Mm-hmm. By definition, you're going to be too early. So stop complaining about it. Start, you know, just start dealing with it. So, give, you know, you can take it as a, as a fact. So, so now what are you going to do about that? And obviously, you know, there are advantages of being too early. You can, you can be one of the first movers and you can um, create interesting relationships and actually shape the market um, and hopefully become a leader in it. The big challenge always is just surviving while you, you do it. Uh, and, and one of the things I've learned from that, I think, is that you know, if you do an MBA or whatever, you'll be taught a lot about sort of competitive marketing and, and sales and so on. And, and almost like life is a zero-sum game, which it can be in mature markets. Mm-hmm. But in early markets, that's not what it's like at all. Um, what all the players have in common, even people who appear to be your direct competitors, what you all have in common is a need for the market to happen. And therefore, um, in fact, your your competitors are in fact your collaborators in helping the market happen. So <laughs> if you know they say, what is it that a customer has to see uh, has to see a, a, an advert or a piece of marketing seven times on average before they buy. Mm-hmm. So so if you know if they see um, six pieces of marketing from your competitor and then a piece of marketing from you and and, and that's what pushes the customer over the edge, your competitor. <laughs> actually helped you, you know, and, and, and likewise with things like standards, you know, standards happen because everybody needs a market, everybody needs scale, everyone needs interoperability, everyone needs to be able to focus on their niche and therefore to be able to work with others. And, and that's what drives standards, even though standards appear to reduce the lock-in that people could otherwise have from their customers. So I think it's just very interesting, those those dynamics of the early market and, and how the sort of commercial needs drive the, the, the technical behavior and the, the collaborative behavior that you get in early markets. Mm, absolutely. Competition is good. And standards, they, uh, they're not the enemy, I suppose. Many people look at them and say, oh, they're just going to constrain us. But indeed, they allow everybody to grow. Anything else that you you can think of that you would offer for advice to folks just starting to think about, you know, building their own their own company? I think ultimately you need to focus on what you're good at personally or what you choose to be good at as a company. And um, mm-hmm. and I think, again, that's slightly a matter of timing in, the, in that in the early days, you may not be able to do that um, because there, there may not be anyone else to work with. But therefore, you may have to do everything yourself. And I think that's really a situation we found ourselves in at Alert Me. You know, we wanted to be a, um, a connected home uh, service provider, a little bit like a cellular provider is a provider of cellular connectivity. For your, you know, with your phone, they don't make phones, they don't make phone infrastructure, they don't do billing systems, mm-hmm. but somehow they, they provide the whole the whole thing. Um, that's what we wanted to do for the connected home, but we ended up having to do 
everything. We had to design edge <laughs> devices and write the software for them. We had to design gateways and write the software for them. We had to design all the cloud architecture. We had to uh, design the, the user experience and the UI and and and, and even the, you know, the business propositions and everything and test, you know, what will people pay for home energy management? I mean, nobody had any idea because it had just never been done before. So, you know, in doing all of that, we were having a lot of fun doing a lot of learning, but equally well, you know, too much learning can be a bit dangerous because uh, you will you will make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's it's it partly depends also whether you're uh, venture funded or not. I think if you're venture funded, then you you, you need you, you know you can take more risk and you can be more aggressive. Equally well, you're, you've now got a very short burning fuse, and so you have to you know you have to succeed within a certain time. Whereas I think before that point, or if you choose not to go the venture funded route, then you have more flexibility, you have more time. And if the market doesn't happen quite as early as you wanted it to, well, that's probably not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a slightly different path. You, you probably have less um, less money to build your proposition and influence the market. But on the other hand, you might have more flexibility to you know, to, to sort of lurk while you wait for the for the for the other parts of the market to happen, and then the whole thing to really take off. Right, right. It sounds an awful lot like making sure you're you're weighing your options and deciding on mm. what you're going to what you're going to invest in building. You know, because it sounds to me like you the story you just told there was so much more to it. Um, perhaps more than you thought when you started to dig into it, that you had to keep learning and learning and trying to figure out which parts you want to own and what your priorities are, I suppose, when it comes to a product or a service. I'm sure you're, you're probably tested uh, fairly frequently as you're building. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Well, we had to survive the uh, the credit crunch in 2008, 2009. In fact, oh. we went out for our Series A VC round uh, right in the teeth of the credit crunch. And that was not fun. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember that time, really. It's a long yes. time ago now. But, you know, it felt like the whole world was falling apart. People just had no idea what was going to happen tomorrow. You know, we had 30, 32, 35 people in the business then. And I just used to go home every day just thinking, how the hell am I going to find, you know, these people, I've got to, I've got to sort the company out so that they have their jobs because we just don't know what's going to happen next. And and we did by the skin of our teeth, but it was, it was very testing. And I think, you know, it's it's always harder than you think it's going to be. It always takes longer than you think it's going to be. And and therefore I think it's really important to do something that you enjoy doing and you, and even more than that, that you care about, you know, that, so you really have that sort of passion. And even if it's hard, you'll still get up in the morning and do your best uh, every day because you, you actually care about the result. Yes, absolutely. That rings so true. I just finished editing a book. Um, Dan Shapiro wrote it on, it's about startup CEOs and really the secrets they don't share. And one of the first lessons he learned was if, you know, if you find yourself in a position where either you or your co-founder are not really passionate and excited about whatever the, the topic of the project may be, it's typically a red flag that maybe it's not a great match. So yeah, I would say that with any, I mean, with, with employees, I always think that if somebody's doing something they love, they're probably about 10 times as productive uh you know mm. and, I, and i think that's true for founders as, as well so uh that's a know, really great really point yeah. yeah and there's so many things to do in the world you, you really should do something you love right right you only have one go at it yeah yeah really. yeah well good well thank you so much pilgrim i appreciate you making time to talk with me today it's been a great pleasure thank you you can reach pilgrim through his twitter handle at pilgrim Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.